thank you very much. Um, thanks for inviting me and for the introduction. Um, I'll be talking today about computational ethnography and agent-based modeling. I really want to um, uh, acknowledge my colleagues, uh, Joey Morris, uh, uh, who's a, a programmer, uh, Daniel Hurd, uh, he's a statistician, and Lee Hoffer is uh, an ethnographer. Uh, before I uh, get to uh, computational ethnography, I'll um, uh, briefly uh, say a few words about uh, my research and uh, what I do. And you know, if you're interested, uh, I'll be more than happy to talk about um, uh, a few other topics. So, <clears throat> uh, most of my research is overlap of several topics. Uh, on the one hand, it's uh, mathematical modeling. On another hand, is biostatistics, and these two disciplines are applied to uh, health research areas and specifically uh, substance use research. So that's where predictive modeling and substance uh, um, use research uh, comes up as a, um, essentially uh, <coughs> uh, an interaction or, uh, or an intersect of uh, all of these um, technical and subject matter. Uh, areas. So when we're talking about um, predictive modeling and analytics in general, uh, I also wanted to make sure that we distinguish um, well between two basic, um, well actually not, 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 not two basic parts, but uh, more a, a continuum of uh, approaches. And when people say, well, what is analytic? What is the place of analytics in modern science? Um, uh, I would like to uh, start with this diagram and say, well, science and scientific approach has been years focusing on um, gold standards and uh, experimental, uh, experimental studies. Well, it should, should, um, say not longitudinal study, but just um, uh, experimental uh, research where you can uh, design um, uh, the most appropriate experiment, uh, you can uh, uh, develop and test uh, the right hypothesis and estimate the correct parameters. On the other end of the spectrum is educated guess. And so if I ask you about um, say, uh, risks of, um, I don't know, so sexual behavior, having many sex partners, and um, risk of having HIV. You know, if we go to um, gold standard experimental studies, we will need to uh, collect, you know, first of all, to build a big longitudinal panel, say 10,000 people, follow them for over 20 years, and measure um, uh, their sexual activity and uh, incidence of HIV. Or you can uh, very quickly say like, oh, okay, probably you know, if we compare one sex partner versus 10 sex partners, it could be 10% you know, high chance of getting HIV, right? So uh, some educated cases you can say right away. Um, but then in the middle, we're talking about some more sophisticated data-driven models that um, use available data that has been collected by others, and uh, these days, big data becomes a, a, um, you know, a, a real buzzword because people start generating the data, but the quality of, data, of this data is far worse than what we'll get through experimental um, uh, processes. So, uh, analytics is uh, uh, located somewhere here. And when we're talking about computational ethnography, we are talking about the area that spans somewhere, you know, it, 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 it touches um, uh, a lot of scientific research, but it also deals with uh, some uh, computational models and educated guesses that we need to, uh, um, uh, to make in, uh, in finding the answer. So why? Uh, modeling heroin use? Well, I'll start with um, a recent problem. And um, so these are the clips from uh, uh, very uh, respectable media, New York Times, uh, ABC News, Miami Herald, and so on, CBS, Wall Street Journal. 
there have been an epidemic going on in the United States, uh, and this epidemic started, uh, well, uh, not, not started fairly recently, but, but the, um, it, it starts developing a new wave over the last couple of years. So all these um, news are uh, coming from uh, earlier this year. Uh, and that's all despite uh, millions and billions of dollars that have, this, uh, have been spent to uh, curb drug use. And the frustration is that uh, despite all this funding that, that has been spent on um, uh, curbing drug use, we're still having all these epidemics. It's not even going down. And uh, now, as you can see, it's, 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 it's going up. So what's wrong with it? So what, what don't we understand here? And uh, I would probably start with uh, uh, two dimensions. So one is that we probably don't understand causality uh, very well. And causality is very often based on association. So um, uh, government conducts uh, a lot of surveys. They try to estimate prevalence, incidence. But that only gives a snapshot of, of what's going on. You can find associations between, say, demographic factors, behavioral factors, and um, um, you know, soci socioeconomic factors and uh, drug use. But uh, when you want to establish causality between them, uh, that's virtually impossible from, from, from simple surveys. Another issue is uh, what kind of actions uh, can we take and what kind of uh, actions the government could take. And generally, government says, oh, okay, well, the, the very first and straightforward action is increase law enforcement. Another action is to um, uh, establish new policy and procedures, uh, for example, uh, restriction, uh, like increase restriction um, uh, to uh, prescription drug access. But these questions like why policies not working have not been uh, addressed very well through um, uh, existing methodologies. So maybe there are other ways that uh, uh, we need to act. <clears throat> and that's where um, uh, ethnographic research helps us. First of all, some of the major issues when we deal with altering or changing human behavior is that human behavior is adaptive. And as soon as you start pressing people for doing something or not doing something, and they like doing what, what, what you're trying them, uh, them to stop doing, they will find a way uh, to uh, avoid the, uh, the new policies. Uh, and then uh, the, um, the environment in which uh, humans live and operate is uh, very complex. And so if we act linear would say, oh, okay, let's increase penalties for uh, drug use. That might trickle down in some uh, complex, non-linear uh, ways and might not lead to uh, the right solution. And um, that's, um, uh, this effect is uh, often called as policy-resistant behavior. So how can we uh, understand complex systems? And this is, I think, one of the probably most important slide where uh, I want to um, really advocate and advertise uh, complex system analysis. So when we thinking, uh, when we think of, um, of complex systems like say a car, right? A car is not uh, uh, a very simple, uh, simple device. So, Although sometimes when you drive it, you think it's simple. You press the gas, it's accelerate. You press the brakes, it stops. However, inside there are many components that work together to, to, uh, to produce a seemingly uh, simple behavior. And this is, by the way, the, uh, the diagram uh, for uh, an electric system of, uh, uh, of a passenger car. Uh, and um, on the uh, my left <laughs> here, this is a diagram uh, for um, uh, uh, power relationships um, uh, in Afghanistan. And this is uh, uh, this is a notoriously complex um, uh, diagram that describes the complexity that social sciences uh, uh, um, uh, has to deal with. 
But in many ways, social scientists will say, will, will still go back to what we're talking about, very straightforward, one-dimensional, linear approaches. And my argument is that, no, uh, these approaches should not be simple and linear. Well, then uh, somebody could argue that, well, it, uh, social science becomes intractable. It's very complex, so how do we understand in the world this, this, this complex diagram? Well, do electricians need to have, to, to be like Nobel Prize winners to understand electric diagram? No, you just say, okay, but, uh, if something is broken here, you just follow down uh, the wires and, and try to understand you know, where, where is the best way to fix it. So people have been doing that for a while and uh, my argument is that complex analysis is not something, complex system is not something that is very new and um, uh, we all, uh, should uh, pay more attention uh, to it and use it in our uh, everyday life. So, how many uh, people are familiar with uh, ethnographic studies? Okay, just, uh, just a few. Um, so, I just um, wanted to uh, briefly uh, say a few words about um, uh, ethnography. So. Uh, one major feature uh, of ethnography, that is, a, it is a qualitative research. So it's, it's a very solid scientific approach to describe uh, human behavior, uh, to describe culture, to, dis um, uh, to describe norms. But uh, ethnographic description, uh, uh, again, as I mentioned, are qualitative, and they, the, the, the product of an ethnographic study is a document which is written in words. And to me, this is uh, uh, the most challenging part because uh, on the one hand, this is empirical data. So this is what, <coughs> what people observe. They can document it to um, uh, the best of their knowledge. But the result of it comes out as, as a book or a paper. Um, for example, um, uh, my colleague, uh, Lee Hoffer, he's, uh, he's right here on the photograph, he has spent uh, 18 months uh, studying uh, heroin use. Uh, uh, he, he, he spent 18 months living with drug dealers in order to understand how uh, drug dealers operate, what's their motivation, what's their culture, um, how, uh, um, uh, how they, uh, uh, they manage to keep the clients and stay away uh, uh, from jail. So it takes actually uh, quite a lot of time and effort, first of all, to um, get uh, drug dealers' trust so that they uh, will not, uh, you know, uh, kick you off or... Um, like uh, uh, Lee was saying that uh, uh, after a few months, he, he, he managed to just sit uh, uh, quietly in the corner and just observe how people operate and nobody will pay attention to him because uh, they have developed this level of trust. Uh, and these ethnographic studies, they go in directly to causality because if, if ethnographer is uh, well skilled, they could actually describe the rules of behavior. And one of the uh, big conclusions that we had made uh, in his study is that um, many economic, uh, many economists who have not worked in the field view drug use uh, from a simple rational behavior uh, uh, and rational economics process. What we have uh, uh, I'm stating is that there is a difference here. Yes, uh, drug dealers are involved in economic, um, um, economic behavior, but the difference is that dealing heroin is a social behavior with economic outcomes rather than economic behavior with the social outcomes. And this difference is very critical because rules of uh, um, common, I mean, common rules of economics don't work there. So how do we turn texts and narratives into models? So this is, uh, uh, I'll give you a, a couple of examples. So 
Um, I, have, uh, I wanted to uh, take a direct quote from uh, the book, so I had to uh, alter it a little bit. But um, uh, this is what uh, a drug dealer um, uh, was telling me, that um, he, he's talking about a customer who comes over to him every day and buys um, about a gram of heroin a day. And um, uh, this drug user uh, explains his behavior that he got an inheritance. Well, um, as we know, usually in most of um, uh, most of time, it's not a true inheritance. It's like somebody could could have stolen a car and sold it, and you know got uh, got some uh, lump sum of money. But what does it really mean for a model? So how do we turn? What, uh, what does the sentence or, or, or paragraph tells us uh, um, uh, that we can formalize? First of all, we say, okay, uh, somebody gets money. So it's not that every day we get an inheritance, uh, but uh, what was um, observed from um, uh, drug-using behavior, they get these windfalls once in a while. So we need to talk about the probability of that. Uh, over a period of time. Then the amount of this windfall. So sometimes you get big inheritance, sometimes you get a small inheritance of maybe like $2,000. So we need to think of a distribution of um, what, uh, uh, what that amount uh, should be. And then um, we can talk about probability uh, of buying the, you know, a certain amount per day. Because sometimes, you know, if uh, heroin users have a number of uh, uh, dollars, then uh, some of them will only buy as, as much as they uh, need and they keep doing that over, uh, uh, over the period of time. Sometimes uh, they will buy the maximum amount they can actually tolerate. And this is what's happening um, in this case. Right, so, where do we get uh, these values? Where do we get these probabilities and distributions? Well, the only way to, to measure that, again, uh, is to ask an ethnographer and say, okay, from your observations over the last 12 months, uh, what do you think will be the, 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 the right distribution? Uh, another example here is when uh, the drug dealer is talking about the way they operate and um, they, uh, they say that uh, there is an, uh, they live in the neighborhood and they, they uh, run uh, operations out of their house, but they want to avoid police raids, so they move away from heroin uh, uh, market, and therefore they don't want to have um, like neighbors uh, uh, suspect them of the wrongdoing, and so at eight, uh, uh, they don't work after eight o'clock. So what does it mean for, for a model again? So, well, there are no deals with private dealers after uh, 8 p.m. And so the alternative uh, next question will be is when do they start uh, operating? And so that's, that's the next question we need to ask an ethnographer and say, okay, well, if after 8 they don't work, so how early in the morning people can come over uh, to the house and that depends, but usually not earlier than 10 o'clock because what they would like to do is just to wait for everybody to go to work in the morning so that there will be like not as many people in the neighborhood and then start uh, taking clients. <clears throat> so based on these narratives, we can uh, now start building an agent-based model. And <clears throat> one of the important, oh, but by the way, um, how many, people are familiar with agent-based models. Okay, so um, I'll say a few words about agent-based models, what they are. So um, they're essentially, uh, I would say, scientifically based computer games. So for example, when you play a computer game and you have different actors and they move around and they meet other people and you know, like in some computer game, they shoot each other or blow things up, Right, so here we're trying to build um, as close of the description of what's, uh, uh, what's written in the book as possible. So what we want to do is we want to create 
those computer objects that are called agents. And uh, these agents will have uh, certain rules of the behaviors. They, they have their parameter values. And they will change these values uh, uh, as time unfolds and they uh, get into interactions with each other. So uh, in our model, we have uh, six actors. So uh, the main actor is the customer, so it's a uh, drug user. Then we have three dealers. Uh, street dealers are uh, people who are standing in the corner and, and uh, selling the drugs. Private dealers, these are the ones who live off the market. They live in residential neighborhoods and operate from 10 to 8. Uh, uh, then we have uh, street brokers. And street brokers are usually um, uh, homeless individuals who uh, are not drug addicts per se, but because they live in this area, they know everybody, and they could, they managed to uh, get a customer a drug for what they call a tax, a little chip of, 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 of heroin for a, a, a tiny dose that uh, they will provide these services. Then there are regular homeless people and uh, uh, police officers. And each of these uh, agents has their own objectives. So, for example, street dealers and private dealers, of course, they want to... Um, uh, maximize their revenue, they want to sell heroin, they want to stay away from jail. Um, uh, police officers want to um, uh, arrest people when they uh, find them with drugs and uh, drug users want to um, uh, use drugs. So this is a schematic uh, diagram of, the, uh, of this market model. So we have uh, individual users that live in their uh, residences and once in a while come to the market when they need a drug. Um, then uh, on the market they move around and they need to bump into street dealers and they try to remember where they made the last deal and so go there next time. And then we have you know, street brokers and then we have police officers who uh, come over once in a while to do the busts and the rest. Uh, uh, drug users and mostly drug dealers. So now we're getting back to this complexity diagram. And uh, remember the diagram uh, uh, I showed about uh, cars electric system. So this is diagram for the uh, behavioral diagram for, for a drug user. So now, like, again, based on uh, what has been uh, written in, uh, in this book in uh, Business, we uh, developed a model so, um, that describes behavior. So an individual, a drug user, could be in the um, uh, satiated or satisfied state. That means that they don't want uh, uh, to use drugs. But then the craving kicks in, and so they start looking for the drugs. So if you want to buy a drug, first you check, do you have money to buy drugs? Well, if you don't have money, you just go try to find money. Uh, steal something or borrow money from, from, from others. If you finally found money, then you have two choices. You can either go to the uh, private dealer, which might be a pain because you know it could be you know you only need to go there within certain hours, and you actually have to be a friend of that private dealer, otherwise he won't sell you anything. Or you just go to an open market, and when you get to an open market, you start wandering around and get into various relationships with street dealers. They can rip you off, you know, just take money and then disappear, or sometimes you can get, more often than not, you get the drug, and then you come home and use the drugs either with a dealer or with the friends or alone. So the transition between these stages depend on the environment and um, uh, depend on the rules that are described in, uh, um, in the book. Um, we also uh, have a, a model for uh, addiction and neurobiological process that essentially works as a, as a clock that triggers individuals' need to go and, uh, uh, and get a drug and uh, develops more desperation. So for example, if uh, a person goes through a severe withdrawal um, uh, phase, then they're ready to, you know, commit serious crime or even kill somebody for, uh, uh, for the money. So 
we have a, a, a simple neurobiological model there. And uh, here I also uh, wanted to show you a, a, a diagram of what is called the habit. And the habit is a key point in uh, drug users' um, uh, actions. So habit is how much normally per day a drug user con uh, uh, consumes. So uh, if um, we're talking about some uh, average uh, units, so somebody has a habit, an average habit is 120 units, uh, which is about half a gram of heroin. So what we can see here is that somebody started as using uh, less than that average level, but as the time goes by, they start increasing their level. And what happens here is very important, is uh, maybe around this time, uh, this individual got a windfall, so got uh, lots of money and managed to start increasing uh, their habit. And what happens here, they get it up to um, uh, almost a gram, a gram and a half, and uh, when they have to spend, as you saw, about $130 a, year, a, a, a day uh, buying heroin, well, you realize that you cannot sustain that. When your inheritance or <laughs> windfall runs out, uh, you realize that it's very difficult to sustain this habit and people stop uh, borrowing your money. So, well, lending your money. And so the drug habit drops down because people are just not able to uh, uh, get heroin. But then they just get uh, back to their ground, but they uh, but the craving that they have developed at this peak still drives them to get more drugs, so they, they might be ready to commit another crime, get more money, and now it starts getting through the phases um, um, of um, um, you know, uh, ups and downs in, in, in binge heroin use. Uh, we have a similar uh, diagram for a street dealer and for a street broker. And uh, what I wanted to show here is um, the uh, main result of this model was to, 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 to explain why heroin market will, um, uh, uh, why heroin market is resilient to police busts. And the critical point is the street brokers. Remember these are the, um, mostly homeless individuals who live there in the street who don't use drugs, so there is very little chance for them to get arrested. But once in a while they get a little cheap little tax of heroin that they um, uh, consume, but they know everybody and they can connect them. So this is the dynamics of um, uh, uh, how much drug is being sold um, uh, on the market. So the, the black top line is the uh, total number of drugs sold, uh, and the green is how much has been sold from the street dealers. And this is under the assumption that there are absolutely no street brokers, so that there are zero street brokers. So what will happen if we have street brokers? We have a completely different picture. First of all, we have much more heroin uh, sold on the market. Um, much less is being sold from street dealers, but a lot of that sold from uh, street brokers. And the um, uh, blue line is the amount that being sold uh, from private dealers. So why uh, why do we have so much uh, sold from private dealers? Because the um, uh, street brokers manage to uh, make these connections between the between the drug users and uh, private dealers. Uh, the spikes here correspond to um, uh, bi-weekly uh, payments because many of um, heroin users still have jobs, you know, because they, 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 they need to, to support themselves. And we assume in this model that they paid twice a month. So as soon as when they pay, they just go to the market. So now what happens when uh, police comes to the market and arrests, starts arresting dealers, right? So police generally, when they have a bus, they arrest whomever they can find. 
And when they arrest whomever they can find, they usually arrest uh, uh, street dealers. And that's why the amount of uh, drug sold by street dealers drops down. The amount of total uh, uh, drug uh, sold drops down. But the amount which is sold by private dealers uh, is going up. And the reason is, of course, that the uh, open market is very convenient. You just go there, you just quickly find a, a, a dealer, you know, hopefully you make a deal, or sometimes you can get ripped off, but you know, there is a good chance that you will uh, get the drug and come back. But now when there are no street dealers, you have to go through some um, other regulations, but uh, you get to the private dealer and still uh, become successful. Well, from economics perspective, it means that you remove the middleman and make the market operating much more successfully. And uh, we can see the same thing when we have two sequential police bus. Every time there is a bus, uh, private dealers get uh, better business. So what's the uh, uh, main conclusion here is um, that uh, Street brokers don't necessarily compete with street dealers, but rather complement their activities. And if we want to um, change the operation of the drug market, acting only on street dealers, and that's what police mostly does, just, just coming over and arresting people, uh, that might not work. And so uh, the uh, policies and actions need to consider uh, street brokers. Uh, how they need to consider that, that's, that's already the next question that we don't have a clear answer to yet. But um, it is also interesting is that after people used to uh, use street brokers after the bus, they uh, essentially um, many of them get stuck with them because they are very efficient, they can provide all these services, and the market becomes um, uh, more efficient. So now the um, question is, okay, well, if we want to develop these models, right, so we want to have all these uh, dealers and brokers and customers operating. So this model becomes very complex and it becomes intractable sometimes. So how social scientists, especially ones who are not used to seeing you know, big and complex models, uh, 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 how to, underst to understand these complex models complexity? And here, uh, I just wanted to give an example of uh, a terrible tragedy that happened uh, in 1935 when uh, Boeing has developed the largest and the most sophisticated bomber of that time called uh, uh, Flying Fortress. It was the amazing piece of engineering, art, and technology, and it was piloted by two top-notch pilots uh, and uh, that ended up in a crash because they uh, uh, forgotten to disengage uh, gas locks. And the problem was that the cockpit of that new bomber became so complex that even if you trained really well, you just cannot hold in mind all these knobs and get and, and, you know, um, the outages that, that are around. And that's why. So, um, how uh, did industry respond to uh, this tragedy? And the answer was very simple. The answer was a checklist. And so now, when you go on the plane, uh, you know, it's, uh, before takeoff, you can hear that the flight attendants say, okay, flight attendants cross-check, and pilots cross-check. So, so that's what they do. They just go over the checklist. Similarly, uh, for uh, agent-based models, um, Railsback and Grimm uh, have developed um, ODE or standard protocol how to develop and describe agent-based models. So it's essentially it's nothing but another checklist and uh, ODE stands for Overview, Design Concepts and Detail. 
So the purpose of this protocol is that um, the reader, and depending on the level of sophistication, like as you go from the top uh, uh, to the bottom, uh, you will get more and more details. So at the overview uh, of what has to describe the purpose of the model, the entities, and by entities we mean uh, agents or uh, other uh, institutions that we model, um, are described in this model, the state variables, the scales, so you know, what are the temporal and uh, um, uh, geographical scales, uh, what are the limits of the model, and uh, process overview and scheduling, so a, a basic overview of what these entities are doing. So by reading that overview um, list, one could just quickly understand what this model is about, what it does. Design concepts is more about how this model uh, has been implemented. So uh, because agents are adaptive, uh, they have their own objectives, they learn, they, they can make forecasts, and uh, they sense what happens around them, they get engaged in interactions with each other. And uh, these, so some of these interactions, some of these behavior could be deterministic, which is based on very fixed rules. Uh, sometimes there is lots of stochasticity, so there will be lots of flipping of coins. Uh, agents could form uh, collectives and groups. And then uh, also we need to understand, you know, from all this complex model, what kind of statistics uh, uh, do, uh, um, do we collect from it? So we really need to understand the observations. So from, from the observer point of view, what are the experimental settings and what kind of information do we want to uh, get from these models? And then in detail, it's more uh, the details of implement, uh, implementation, like initialization, uh, the input data, and uh, description of the submodels. So. The reason why I want to bring this up is I want to say that until fairly recently, as you could see, and um, I think uh, uh, only after appearance of this, uh, um, of this book um, by Rezbach uh, and Grimm, uh, the description of agent-based models was very haphazard. And I think this is one of the reasons why people were, especially in social science, um, sciences were very confused and it was not, um, there was a uh, heterogeneity of opinions and people, so some people thought that agent-based models are completely useless because just it's really difficult to understand them and make any sense. So now, hopefully, things will be uh, uh, much clearer and better. So now we have all these complex models and um, uh, develop uh, this heron market model that um, operates actually on a time step of a half minute. And the reason why we need to operate on half minute is because when an individual gets to the market, um, they need to run into uh, a dealer, right? If, 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 if a customer is a drug user uh, um, uh, wants to make a deal. And customers are moving, uh, people are moving with certain pace. Right? And we, we are trying to model the real area um, in Denver, which is, uh, um, uh, the area is called uh, Lorimer Market. That's uh, um, a, couple of, um, block, uh, um, a couple of blocks that um, uh, held uh, this open air market. So if you increase the time step, say five minutes, in five minutes you can miss the dealer and uh, not make the deal. So that becomes a little bit uncomfortable because we're not really interested in all these details of how the deals are made. What we're really interested in is how much drugs is being sold per day on the market or per month on the market. And what we want to do is to act on the market in such a way that this, number, this amount of drugs sold will be reduced. Or, I mean, just ideally, it'll be, it'll be zero but at least we just want to understand how to influence. So for that, we don't need 
uh, half a minute time step. But if we look at some of uh, main statistics like probability of arrest, average time spent on the market, probability of obtaining heroin, probability of um, uh, invi uh, getting invited to uh, work with private dealers, we see that when the time step is small, we're getting kind of like flat um, probabilities. But as we increase, and zero corresponds to um, um, one minute time step, and this is logarithmic uh, scale, so 3.5 corresponds to one hour. So we will, if we increase the time step, we'll start getting um, some artificially um, incorrect results. Um, so what we want to do then is we want to say if we look at uh, our model and uh, at the diagram, we really want to simplify. We want to remove that part of the model that corresponds to operation in the open air market. And actually, we want to remove drug dealers. Uh, we want to remove police. We want to remove brokers, and just simplify. Just just uh, uh, leave drug users. Uh, how can we do that? So what we want to do is to say, let's run model many times and collect statistics of what's happening on this market and replace all these complex behavior with a collection of statistical. Correction of uh, um, uh, statistical summaries. So what we managed to do, we managed to collect, uh, you know, just uh, um, probability, uh, just to look at the distribution of time on the market, distributions of uh, successes, um, probability of making uh, making a deal, and so on. So for 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 all of these uh, major outcomes. We have uh, uh, collected statistics, and then we replaced the whole component of um, complex model with these statistics. So essentially what happens, an individual wants to get a fix, and they decide that they found money, they decide to go to the market. As soon as they decide to go to the market, we flip the coin and say, okay, are they going to be successful? If they're going to be successful, how much time will they spend on the market? And uh, how much drug the, they will buy and how much money will they spend? Boom, so now we just generate four numbers and we're back to the model. So uh, we make a shift, say, if this, you know, we flip the coin and say, okay, the, the person spends two and a half hours in the market. We shift the time by two and a half hours and we know what's, what's uh, going on. Apparently, this approach didn't work. And it didn't work because the relationship between variables is not linear. Uh, so, for example, uh, individual drug addiction, individual drug inventory, and individuals' um, um, uh, amount of money that they have. Uh, so some of these relationships are, are, are fairly linear, right? but some of them are not. Some of them are really complex, and we need to um, use some regression modeling to, um, well, f first of all, to figure out which relationships between variables are important and how to incorporate them. So now, when an individual goes to the market, we really need to say, oh, okay, if the person decided to go to the market, we need to know how many people are already on the market, how much drug is available on the market. Uh, did police decide to have a bust? And so all these factors uh, we need now to include into a set of more complex regressions. And uh, then we managed to get a much more simpler model operate uh, like a complex model. So, okay, uh, on these you know, uh, very busy graphs, I just want to show that the, the black line is the full model. This is an agent-based model. Uh, and this is uh, average end of the day customer addiction and time in days is on uh, horizontal line. Uh, line. 
So the red line is what happens if we replace uh, all these operations on, on the market just with distributions. And uh, we will be pretty much off. So now the blue line is when we uh, replace it with uh, much more complex nonlinear regressions. And as you can see, we pretty much close uh, almost everywhere except some, some initial transition uh, period. Similar with uh, end of the day customer inventory. So if we just replace it with, um, uh, um, uh, with just overall statistical distributions, we'll be off. If we are um, uh, using complex regression models, we are getting close. So what comes out of that? Well, one, one thing is um, we, uh, first of all, we came up with some measures of comparing the full model and reduced model. So we can take two uh, agent-based models and start uh, saying whether they're equivalent to each other or not. And uh, here, for example, we're looking at the p-values for the difference, uh, point-wise uh, uh, difference between the models. So for example, like at each point of time, we'll look at these two distributions and say, are they are they similar? Of course, the, the distribution here is very different from distribution here. But the distribution of red, I mean, the distribution of blue model and uh, black model, the pool that we used there, uh, they're pretty much within, within the same bandwidth. All right, so this block has a little bit uh, uh, more resolution. So now uh, we see that for customer addiction, Again, at the beginning, we have some uh, transitional um, um, points, but um, the p-value, um, um, or inverse, actually, of p-value is such that the p-value is very um, small, that there is no difference between them. Here, we also have no difference, except maybe there's just you know, a few observations that are uh, uh, scattered around, a few, few time points when we get some uh, uh, statistical images. And uh, when we get back to our original um, um, format, I mean, uh, our original um, statistics that we uh, want to um, want to study in this model, like for example, probability of obtaining heroin, we can see that uh, that this is the dependence on uh, on the time step of the full model, and that's why we run it at a very small uh, time step at half minutes, just, just because it was behaving very unstably as we increased the, uh, the time step. Now this red line is um, the behavior of the model uh, when we change time step again, you know, from a few seconds to uh, uh, half an hour. And so what it means, actually, is that when we reduce the model down to uh, a set of uh, regressions, this, this complex agent-based wandering to a set of regressions, we can actually simplify the model that we can have a much larger time step and a much simpler model. We can put it on the web. We can let students play with it. It will run fast. It will generate all kinds of uh, interesting summaries. But it will have, it will contain the same information as the full model that describes very complex behaviors. All right, so the last uh, couple slides is that, well, uh, first of all, lessons learned, uh, heroin market is adaptive and human behavior is adaptive. So when we want to summarize human behavior in a set of simple distributions or in a set of simple regressions, very often we will get to uh, wrong results. So it really takes, it, it, it took us several months of very extensive studies of this uh, agent-based models to, to figure out which parameters and which variables we need to use in regression models in order to get an adequate behavior. And that um, well, to me, this is yet another proof that we really need to use ethnographic studies that 
talk about, uh, describe rules and causality rather than rely on surveys that just, you know, have associations and you impose some causality based on those associations. Right, so first of all, you really need to, to, to understand which parameters, which, which variables um, to use. And uh, what is very important is that uh, social uh, simulations allow you to explore these relationships. And we can also apply social network interventions to understand um, you know, how uh, brokers uh, are operating or how other um, how, how the relationships between different types of agents uh, are being built. And um, one very important result here is that there is a need to collaborate between computer scientists, statisticians, ethnographers, social scientists. So we really need to have a team who understand every single part of uh, all these complex systems. Right. Otherwise, it's very easy to, to miss uh, the point. And finally, what I would like to do is to um, introduce the concept that I'm advertising a lot, <laughs> is that when we're um, dealing with uh, public health or just general behavioral interventions, uh, what usually happens is it starts with a hypothesis of certain relationships. And then people uh, conduct a survey measuring um, these variables, conduct regression model, find associations, and develop policy based on these associations. So what we would like to propose is a modification of this process. First, we conduct an ethnographic study. Ethnographic study doesn't need to have huge samples, so it essentially gets a deep data collection so you understand what is going on in terms of uh, um, rules and causal relationship. Build an agent-based model. Play around with this agent-based model. Understand the relationship. Understand which associations are really causal and which, which of them are important. And after that, develop hypothesis, conduct a focused survey, and now rather than using huge surveys where people say, oh, let's add this instrument, let's add another instrument. And so we sometimes deal with huge surveys that still don't have important information. So here we can collect important information based on our simulations, and from that just update model parameters and then develop policy. Thank you very much.